0: Psalm 27, one through 14 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me and eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord Forsake me not, O God, my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord.
1: So we're in a sermon series on prayer. And specifically, we're looking at the book of Psalms, which is famously known as the prayer book of the Bible. That means that if you want to know what prayer is, if you want to know how to do it, you need a teacher. Um, so getting into the Psalms is like going to the school of prayer. Now, last week, uh, we started getting into this topic of uh, living a transformed life. Hot. Uh, personal transformation is a hot topic nowadays. Everybody wants to know what it means to live a transformed life. So last week, we saw that one of the main elements in that is something called repentance. Repentance. In other words, you have to be honest with yourself about what's going on in your life. You can't really change your life if you don't know what actually needs to be changed. But this week, we start to look at the other side of the equation because just being honest with yourself about uh, what needs to change in your life, that only gets you halfway there. So maybe you begin to face some truths about yourself. Maybe you begin to get honest with yourself about where your life is at and the kinds of things that you're struggling with. You start to look at some of your problems. Maybe you struggle with things like fear or ambition or greed or lust or anger or pride or bitterness or inner emptiness, whatever it might be. You look at your life and and you realize there's some things that need to change, but just knowing what needs to change doesn't itself actually change you. Something else needs to happen. What is it? David, in this prayer, says that there's one thing that changes everything he says one thing i'm asking one thing i'm seeking he says there's one thing that changes everything what is it it's the beauty of god now what does that mean i want to look at this subject of the beauty of god by seeing three things about it this morning we're going to see why we need it we're going to see what it actually is and then lastly we're going to talk about how you find it why do we need the beauty of god What is the beauty of God, and how do we actually find it? Let's begin by asking the question, why do we need this? Now, this is a a psalm of David. David was the great king of Israel. And in this prayer, you see he's facing a lot of different things. Uh, So, for instance, in verse 3, we notice that he talks about armies and wars that are besieging him and attacking him. David is in actual physical danger from an attacking army. Um, And, you know, that might be a little bit of a foreign experience for most of us. I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I was attacked by an army. But it's not a completely foreign experience when you start thinking about it. I mean, if you were ever bullied, then you know what it's like to go to school and and be worried about maybe a physical attack when you get there. Or, you know, if you're African American in this country, uh, this is even more of a real experience for you. They actually just opened a new memorial in Montgomery, Alabama that commemorates the literally thousands of lives that have been lost, um, brutally murdered, brutally lynched, simply because of the color of their skin. So some of you actually, this, this is a bit more of a real experience for you. You know what it is to fear for physical danger. But then if you look at verse 10, David's talking about something that's all the way over on the other side of our experience in this world. He talks about um, his mother and father forsaking him. So this is not physical danger. He's talking about relational rejection. He's talking about abandonment and betrayal and loneliness. Do you see what this means? It, this is not just one thing David is talking about. It's everything. It's, it's the big things. It's big things like maybe losing your home or your marriage or your uh, health or your job or maybe even losing your life. But it's also all the little things. You know, all the little daily stressors and anxieties that fill your life kind of like a pebble in your shoe. It's not huge. It's not like, but it's just kind of always there. You can't really get away from it. David isn't just talking about one thing. He's talking about everything in this psalm. In other words, He's talking about all the things that the world will really throw against you. All of it. So, for instance, there was a book many years ago called The Denial of Death. It was written by an anthropologist named Ernest Becker. And it won a Pulitzer Prize, actually, back in the 1970s. Uh, He was a cultural anthropologist who wrote this book. And in the book, he talks about this. I love the way he puts it. He says, I think that taking life seriously means something like this, that Whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it is false. I think that's a great way of putting everything that David's talking about in this psalm. He calls it the rumble of panic underneath everything. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever experienced that? Um, my mom died several years ago. And uh, the way she died was she had a series of blood clots and strokes that eventually led to her demise. And I remember one time, right after she had narrowly survived one of those blood clot incidents, and uh, she almost died. And I remember I was talking with my dad on the phone, and my dad said, Son, your mother dodged a bullet today. Have you ever felt like that? Like the universe is shooting bullets at you? And maybe the best thing that you can do is try to get out of the way, What do you do with that? How do do you deal with that? How do you deal with the rumble of panic? How do you deal with with the bullets that the universe is constantly shooting at you? In verse 3, David says he has something that gives him confidence. He's got something that enables him to face it. In fact, he goes even further than that. In verse 6, he says, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Now, will you notice something about that? David's enemies are still there. It's not like he's escaping his troubles. They're they're right there, right in front of him. His enemies, his troubles, all of his problems are very much right up in his face. And yet he says that no matter how real his troubles are, he's got something that's more real. Something that enables him to look at all of his troubles and say, why fear? Why be afraid? I've got something that gives me confidence. My head is lifted up. What is that? That leads to our next point. We've seen why we need the beauty of God. But secondly, we need to see what is the beauty of God. Because in verse 8, David says, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Your face I seek. Now, in the Hebrew language, that word face is the word that's used uh, anytime they want to talk about the presence of God. In the Hebrew language, they don't actually have a word that means Presence. So, anytime in the Bible that you see the word presence, it's really translating the word face because that's what they use to talk about someone's physical presence. David is saying that he wants God's presence in his life, but this is not just some abstract, fuzzy sense of God's mystical presence. He's saying this is God's face, and that's what's so amazing about the way the Bible talks about God. It says, in order to talk about God's presence, you've got to talk about His face. And why is that so important? You know um, how people say, um, they say things to each other on Facebook that they would never say in person? You know how people say things to each other online, maybe in the comment section of an article or a blog, that they would never say to somebody if you were standing face to face with them? Why is that? It's because presence changes everything. To be in the physical presence of somebody, you know, their eyes looking at you, their gaze upon you, it it makes their presence real to you in a way that actually changes your behavior. In other words, the reality of the person overrides the reality of your anger or your indignation or whatever it is you're feeling. The reality of the person overrides overrides the reality of your lived experience. Presence changes everything. David is saying, God, I want your presence because your presence changes everything. So you see, on the one hand, he's got the reality of all these troubles in his life. It's right there. It's right up in his face. And yet on the other hand, he says, I've got the reality of something else in my life that actually changes my experience of these troubles. On the one hand, he's got all of the troubles right in his face, but on the other hand, he's saying God is more real to him than all of his troubles. Presence changes everything, but it's even more specific than that. If you look at verse 4, David says that he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It's not just God's face. He says it's the beauty of God's face. David says, God, I want to gaze upon your beauty. Now, what does that mean? You know, this is actually very similar to something that Moses said to God in Exodus chapter 33, Moses had this conversation with God and he said to God, God, show me your glory. In essence, he was saying, God, I want to I come into the presence of your reality. He said, I want to see your face. I want to behold your beauty. I want to behold your, God, your glory. God, show me your glory, Moses said. And we've talked about this here before. You know that word glory? The Hebrew word is a word that actually means weight. In other words, Moses is saying, God, I want the weight of your reality to weigh upon me so that if you have God's glory in your life, it's the heaviest thing in your life. So for instance, uh, imagine it like this. Imagine uh, a pond of water and the surface of the water is perfectly still. What would happen if you were to drop a feather on the surface of the water? It just wafts down and hits the surface of the water. What would happen? It would maybe cause a few ripples on the surf- surface of the water, but, but they would be barely noticeable. Why? Because the feather doesn't weigh all that much. But then what would happen if you were to take a boulder and drop it on the water? And wham, the impact. All of a sudden, there's not just ripples, but waves of water everywhere. There's water sloshing all over the place. Why? Because the boulder has more glory than the feather. The boulder weighs more so that all of a sudden, the boulder is displacing everything. It's, it's overriding the water. It's, it's rearranging everything. It's shaping everything. The same thing happens in our life. Something has ultimate weight in your life. Whatever it is, something has ultimate glory in your life. Something shapes you. Something rearranges everything in your life. Something displaces and overrides everything in your life because something has ultimate glory in your life. So for most of us, our troubles, our problems, our struggles are far more real to us than God is. Why? Because something has ultimate glory. Something has ultimate weight in our life. But if God were to become really real to you, if you were to begin to really experience His face, to really experience His glory, His beauty, if God were to become really real to you, the weight of that would actually begin to displace everything else, to override and rearrange everything else in your life. You know, every single human being longs for this. We all long for God's beauty. We all long for God's glory. We all long for... You know, a message from another world, beckoning to us, whispering to us, trying to get us to remember that there really is a world beyond this world. And it's always on the verge of of breaking through into our world, so that even the experience of longing is itself an experience of the thing itself. Have you ever experienced something like that? It happens in lots of different ways. Maybe, Maybe it happens to you when you're reading a certain passage in a book or when you listen to a certain piece of music, or maybe it happens when you're looking at a sunset, or maybe you see a, a lonely tree on top of a hill, and it seems like at that very moment, just for a moment, something was calling out to you saying, come, find your heart's true desire. Step through the door, enter another world. The, the, the longing, it, it's actually it's like an invitation and it creates a desire within us to actually step through and enter into the beauty, into the longing of that thing. Haven't you ever experienced that? What is that? That beauty, that longing. It's like news from a far country. It's like a message from another world. David says in verse 8, he, he talks about this and he says, God, you said seek my face. It's like something David was overhearing Not with his ears, but in his heart. God, you said, seek my face. That God calls out to us, issues an invitation. Come, seek your heart's deepest desire in me. Seek the beauty that you're looking for in me. Now, here's the thing. We live in a world that says that that longing is a lie. That says that longing is actually an illusion. There is no God. There is no world beyond this world and if you believe in that, you're actually endangering yourself. You're, you're making yourself out to be a fool. But it's hard to resist that. Really hard to resist it. In fact, I think that we see this in our culture all the time. As best as I can see, in our culture, we're constantly toggling back and forth between these two things. We're constantly toggling back and forth between, on the one hand, um, sincerity and, on the other hand, irony. Between, on the one hand, uh, hopefulness, and on the other hand, apathy. Between, on the one hand, um, cynicism, and on the other hand, uh, uh, real authenticity. We're constantly toggling back and forth between these two things, so on the one hand, we've got this real desire to actually believe that there are things like kindness, and goodness, and beauty, and truth, and love, and even, corny as it sounds, even something like redemption, Uh, On the other hand, um, we're afraid to appear sentimental and naive. We're afraid um, we want to become defensive about this. We're afraid because we live in a, like, what do we call it? A weary, cynical world, a weary, ironical world that's always looking at all the things I was just talking about, beauty, goodness, and truth, and it just looks at them and it guffaws, rolls its eyes and says, come on, don't be a sucker. The world isn't really like that. Don't forget the rumble of panic underneath everything. Don't forget that, that, that the world isn't really like that. You don't want to let yourself become a fool and be taken in like that. You always have to be on guard against things like beauty, goodness, and truth because the world isn't really like that. Don't be a sucker. I think one of my favorite cultural representatives of this outlook would be the fictional TV character April Ludgate from Parks and Rec. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Uh, In many ways, she's a pretty stereotypical character, at least at the beginning of the show. She's like 20-something years old. She wears skinny jeans. Um, She never takes her eyes off of her smartphone except to roll them at all the silly, naive people around who are so foolish as to believe in things like kindness and goodness and trying hard. She just looks at all these people, and she's like, Whatever. She's cynical. She's apathetic. For April Ludgate, it is not cool to care about anything. In fact, the adjective she uses, I don't know if you've watched the show, if you ever noticed this, the adjective she uses most often to describe the people and the things around her is lame. Everything's lame. What does lame mean for April Ludgate? Okay? Um, lame to April Ludgate means don't be a sucker. Don't believe in things like beauty, goodness, and truth. You'll only be taken in. Don't give your heart to things like that because you're a sucker if you believe in those things. I am going to be on guard in my life against those kinds of things. I'm not going to let my heart be taken in by them. But, you know, one of the fascinating things in the show is um, several seasons into the show, much later on, uh, she goes with her husband, Andy, to go visit the Grand Canyon. And uh, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know what happens. You walk out to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and all of a sudden, you're just overwhelmed by the beauty of it. And so as Andy and April walk out to the edge, and they see the sight right before them, Andy, uh, he says, wow, it's so much more beautiful than I ever could have imagined. And April, amazingly enough, April says, yeah, I'm trying to find a way to be annoyed at it. But I'm coming up empty. I'm coming up empty. What happened to her at that moment? Something overrided her cynicism and her apathy. Something displaced all of that. Something rearranged all of that because at that moment in her life, something was weighing more than that. What was it? It was beauty. Beauty. Now listen, if an earthly beauty like the Grand Canyon could do something like that for April Ludgate? What in the world could an experience of God's beauty do for you? We long for this, and we are not fools to believe in this. If you really saw it, if you really had it, it would change everything. David says one thing, one thing I'm asking, one thing I'm seeking. If I have this, then it doesn't matter if I was lacking everything else. I would have everything. And if I'm missing this one thing, then, then even if I had everything else in the world, I would have nothing. This is the one thing I'm seeking, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Dear ones, this is the thing that changes everything. Why? You know, beauty, the beauty of God does not change your circumstances. You look at David in this passage. It didn't change his circumstances. His enemies are still there. His problems are still there. His troubles are still there. They're all right up in his face. He's still in the wilderness. He's still running for his life. The beauty of God does not change your circumstances. It changes you. And by the way, this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Many religious people uh, they look at God and, and they serve God in order to get a good life. In, in the religious view of God, God is a means to some other end. He's, he's a way of getting something else in your life. So maybe you'll do your religious duties, you'll go to church, you'll obey the rules, maybe you'll even tithe your money. And when you pray, uh, what you're primarily praying about most of the time is your own circumstances. You want God to change your life. Why? Because there's something You want more than God, whatever it is you want God to do something about, whether it's romance or family or home or status or success or money or children or whatever it might be, that's your real glory. That's your real beauty. That's what weighs the most in your life. And the religious view of life says God is a means to that end. So when you pray to him, what you're seeking, you're seeking God, but really you're seeking God because you want something else more than God. And that is, friends, by far the most common perception when I'm talking to people um, about the gospel and what they think Christianity really is. By far, this is the most common perception of Christianity I encounter, that people will look at the Bible and say, well, the Bible is a book that's there to teach you how to be a good person so that God will give you a good life. You see, it's not God that you're after, it's the good life that you're after. Being a good person is just a means to an end. Now, that is every other religion, but that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not primarily a set of rules and instructions telling you what to do. I mean, think about it. Is that really going to change you? Here's what you must do. Be really, really good at it. Try your hardest or else. How is that beautiful? How does that change you? The answer is it's not, and it doesn't. The gospel is not primarily rules and instructions about how you must live in order to get some other end in your life. No, the gospel is primarily about what God has already done for you. The gospel does not say be a good person and God will give you a good life. The gospel says God has already given his life for you, and therefore you can go out into the world and try and be a good person, but not in order to get a good life, because God has already given his life for you. Friends, the beauty of God does not change your circumstances. It changes you. It's not a means to some other end. It is the end. Now, real quick, that does not mean that we should never pray about our circumstances, that we should never pray about the world or our lives or the things that are going on in our lives. We should pray about those things. And in fact, we're going to talk about that more next week. What it does mean is that God himself is not a means to some other end. He is the end. He is the thing that we seek. And that leads to our last point. We've talked about why we need the beauty of God. We've talked about what is the beauty of God. But lastly, we need to look at how do we actually find it? How do we find this? You know, this is a series on prayer. And so I want to try and be as practical as possible. What does this psalm actually teach us about what it means to seek the beauty of God in our lives? Let me offer you just a few thoughts on this application-wise. The first thing is you have to go to the temple. The first thing is you have to go to the temple. What does that mean? You notice in verse four, David says that he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. The house of the Lord little later, he says, I want to inquire in your temple. He uses all this language, house, temple, shelter, tabernacle in this prayer. It's all different ways of talking about the same thing. The temple. What is the temple? The temple is the place of God's presence. The temple is literally, it's like the bridge between heaven and earth. It's the place where God's presence actually breaks into the world. It's the bridge between heaven and earth. Now, um... The temple can only be the place of God's presence because it's also the place of God's sacrifice. The only way the temple can be the place of God's presence is because it's also the place of sacrifice. Now, a lot of us might look at the temple and think, well, you know, ancient people believed in stuff like that. They believed that you have to go to some holy place in order to encounter God's presence. But we're modern people now. And we now know that you can go anywhere and experience the presence of God. You can experience God's presence in nature. You can experience God in creation. And I would say, yes, that that there is an extent to which that is true. But the temple is the place where you really see God's presence most clearly and most powerfully because the temple isn't just the place of God's presence. It's the place of sacrifice. It's the place of sacrifice. Why is that so important? You know, if you were to go back to Exodus, that conversation we were talking about between Moses and God, when Moses said to God, God, show me your glory, show me your face. Do you remember what God said to Moses? He said, Moses, no one can see my face and live. Or it's like that place in Isaiah chapter six, the prophet Isaiah, he's in the temple of God. And it says that he saw a vision of God's holiness. He saw a vision of God's glory and what he he said was, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Every time in the Bible that somebody gets into the direct presence of God, it's always radically dangerous. Every time someone gets into the presence of God, they always come to this radical understanding of just how unworthy we really are to be in the presence of God. We become heartbreakingly aware that something else other than God is our real beauty. In fact, one of the ways you know that you're really beginning to experience and encounter this God is you begin to become aware of all the ways that you've made something other than God your real beauty, your real glory in your life. The presence of God actually reveals us to ourselves. And so we know that when we come into God's presence, we, we intuitively understand that we need some kind of mediation We need some kind of atonement, something to make it possible for us to remain in his presence. That's why we need a temple. To to go into the temple means that you go to God in prayer, actually asking God to help you see all the ways in your life that you've made something other than him your beauty, and that you need something that will make it possible for you to remain in his presence. So first, you have to go to the temple. But secondly, you have to gaze upon him. You have to go to the temple, but when you get there, you have to gaze upon him. Now, what does that mean? The best way, the fastest way I know to illustrate this is there's a very famous old illustration that says there's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet, maybe because you read about it in a book somewhere, and then actually tasting honey because you get a drop of it on your tongue. There's a world of difference between those two things. When that happens to you, all of a sudden you you go from knowing about honey to actually tasting the reality of honey. David says, when he says, God, I want to gaze upon the beauty of your face, he's actually talking about moving beyond just knowing about God to actually experiencing God, to actually tasting God. It's like the boulder hitting the pond. David wants the reality of God to impact his heart in such a way that it displaces everything, it overrides everything, it changes everything in his life. So you go into the temple and you gaze. Now, what in the world does that mean? Remember what the temple is. The temple is the bridge between heaven and earth. It's the intersection of those two things. It's the place of God's presence because it's also the place of sacrifice. Do you know that Jesus Christ said, I am the true temple. Jesus is the true temple of God. He is the ultimate temple of God because Jesus Christ is the bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God's presence in this world because Jesus is the sacrifice that made it possible. So that all those things that you long for all those things that you desire, all the beauties that you're seeking and all of the things that you love. Do you know what that is? That's Jesus. Jesus is the beauty behind and underneath all of the other beauties that you're seeking. So when you go to the temple, it means you're going to Jesus to gaze at God's glory. You're you're looking at glory, God's glory, by looking at it in Jesus. So every week at the end of the service, I offer you a benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in that chapter, Paul says that God, who said, let light shine in darkness, has made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So to go to the temple means that you're seeking the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to actually gaze upon him? Just a little bit before that in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 3, very famous verse. It's had a lot of meaning for me over the years. Paul says that we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. It says that when we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus, we are transformed. Do you know what that means? The beauty of God does not change our circumstances. It changes you. The more you actually see Jesus, his beauty, his glory, his presence, the more you actually see him, the more you're transformed, the more it changes you. Now, that word beholding that Paul uses, it's a very interesting word. Remember how David says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? That word gaze is not your normal word for just seeing something or looking at something. It's 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 a word that actually means to gaze at something, to look intently at it. It's the very same meaning as that word beholding that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That word beholding that Paul uses, actually it was a word that was used to describe um, looking in a mirror deeply. You know how, how you look in a mirror sometimes? Maybe if you need to do something to your face, like put on makeup, or if you're getting older like me, you got to kind of do some more fine grooming on your face because there's hair in more places than used to be. You know, when you're looking in a mirror that deeply, what, what are you doing? You're pouring into it. Literally, you're looking into the very pores of your skin. You're gazing intently. You're absorbed in it. You know what that... Actually, we do this all the time with our smartphones. We're just absorbed with this. That's what it means to behold. That's what it means to gaze. So what that means is, is you take some attribute or aspect or, or facet of Jesus of who he is, of what he's done. And you begin to meditate on that. You begin to think about that. You begin to turn it over and over in your mind and think about it more and more until all of a sudden it begins to become radioactive, until it catches fire in your heart, until the the drop of honey hits your tongue. The boulder hits the surface of the water, and all of a sudden, the reality of Jesus is beginning to change you. It's beginning to override all the other things in your life. You see, this is talking about the beauty of Jesus. So, what would it mean? You know, because all the aspects of Jesus, all the attributes of Jesus, the list is infinite. You're not going to think about all of these things at once. So you just take one and you think about it. You begin meditating on it. This psalm is about the beauty of God. So what does it mean to meditate on the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Well, think about Jesus. How is he the beauty of God? Maybe you go to Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about Jesus being equal to God. But then it says that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of his glory and took the form of a servant. You start thinking about that. Jesus is the one with ultimate glory. Jesus is the one with ultimate beauty. But when he came to earth, he divested himself of his beauty. He emptied himself of his glory. And then maybe you go from there to Isaiah chapter 53, where it says that, um, it talks about Jesus, and it says that, um, that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, that he had no beauty that we should desire him. You begin thinking about that. Jesus Lost his beauty. Jesus emptied himself of his beauty. In fact, maybe you look a little bit before that in Isaiah 52, where it says that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of humankind. You know what that's talking about? It's talking about the cross. It's telling us that, that on the cross, Jesus, the most beautiful one in all of creation, He's the beauty behind all the beauties, the glory behind all the glories. It's telling us that on the cross, Jesus lost his beauty. He was disfigured. He was distorted. Why? So that he could make you his beauty. So that he could redeem you from all the ways you're making all kinds of other things your beauty. So that he could make you his beauty. That's why Jesus lost his beauty on the cross. Friends, when you see that, you know, there is nothing that will change your life more than that. Because there is nothing more beautiful than sacrificial love like that. And you know, as I'm saying this, I'm guessing maybe some of you are thinking, wow, that sounds like a lot of work to do something like that. Sounds like a lot of time and discipline to, to meditate on the beauty of Jesus like this. Well, guess what? It is. But I want you to consider, we've talked about this, that you're already doing this with something in your life. You're already absorbed in the beauty of something in your life, and it feels like nothing to give yourself to it because it's so absorbing to you. It's captured your imagination. So, so first, you go to the temple. Second, you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But lastly, you have to wait. You know, at the end of this psalm, David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. You know, it's very possible that when David was praying this prayer, That he may not actually have been experiencing the glory and the beauty and the presence that he was actually praying about. He says, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I may not have it right now, but I'm waiting for it. I'm asking for it. Lord, give this to me. Friends, I want to encourage you that, that the time you spend in prayer asking the Lord to give you his beauty seeking the Lord, seeking His face, seeking His beauty. You may not get a sense of that every time you pray. I know I don't. You may get a little droplet on your tongue every once in a while, and in fact, you may actually go through whole seasons of your life where it feels like you're just dry, like nothing's happening in your life. David says, wait for it. He says, ask for it. You know, there's a a place, um, actually in his Reflections on the Psalms, where C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said that, that when we pray, we're like people digging channels in a waterless land in order that when at last the water comes, it may find them ready. There are happy moments even now when a little trickle comes along the dry road, the dry bed, and happy souls to whom this happens often. He's saying that the daily discipline of praying, the daily discipline of seeking God like this, actually creates space in your life so that when God actually does give you a sense of His beauty, a sense of His presence, your heart is actually ready for it. Your heart is actually receptive to it. But the daily discipline is part of making yourself ready for this. Wait for it. Ask for it. God's beauty, friends, it does not change your circumstances, but it changes you. You know, when Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, began his leadership of the civil rights movement. Uh, It began uh, with him leading the Montgomery bus boycotts. He talks about this in one of his sermons. He says that when he first took leadership of the movement, uh, what happened was he began getting all these threatening phone calls and letters. And in the beginning, he took it in stride. But after a while, the phone calls and the letters kept coming, and the threats became more and more serious. So one night, he says he was getting into bed, And just as he was about to fall asleep, the phone rang. And when he answered it, there was an angry voice on the other end of the phone, ominously threatening his life. And after that, he couldn't sleep. And so what he did was he went to his kitchen. He put on a pot of coffee. And and he began to try to think about, how am I going to get out of this movement without appearing to be a coward? But then as he was sitting there, he began to pray. and, And here's how he prayed. He said, Lord... I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I am afraid The people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And he says that at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced before experienced him it seemed as though i could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying stand up for righteousness stand up for truth god will be at your side forever he says almost at once my fears began to pass from me i was ready to face anything he said the outer situation remained the same but god had given me inner calm The presence of the Lord. He said, the outer situation remained the same, but inside I was completely different. Dear ones, the beauty of God, the glory of God, the presence of God, it does not change your circumstances. It changes you. Have you tasted of this? The desire itself is the first sip. Do you want this? Go to the temple seek God's glory in Jesus, gaze upon Him, meditate on Jesus, on who He is, on what He's done for you until it catches fire in your hearts, and then wait for it. Ask for it daily. Let this change you. It will. He's promised. Wait for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the promise of Your face to all who seek You. We pray even this morning, Lord, I don't know where everyone's at in this room, some of us may be uh, really experiencing you in a very powerful and joyful way in this most recent season of our lives, and others of us may be walking through a, a dry riverbed where it seems like you've disappeared and abandoned us. I pray this morning, Father, that you would help all of us to persevere and to seek you, to seek your beauty and your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and I pray that you would give us all an ever greater sense of your beauty and your glory and your presence in our life Father that That it might not change our circumstances, but that it would actually change us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.